0: Hey guys, what's going on? This is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you episode seven of the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. In this week's episode, we're gonna be covering some of the causes of abdominal pain that are high yield for your exam. Let's start off with something quick and easy, hernias. For the exam, you only need to know some terminology and just a little bit of management. So there are three different classifications for hernias. You can have a reducible hernia, an incarcerated hernia, and a strangulated hernia. Reducible hernias are simply just that. You can reduce them. Incarcerated hernias cannot be reduced. However, they are neither tender nor erythematous on exam, and they have a preserved blood supply. These can also cause bowel obstructions, so a surgical consult is usually warranted on your exam. However, there is no need for an emergent surgical consult. A strangulated hernia, just like an incarcerated hernia, can also not be reduced. The key difference here is that a strangulated hernia has lost its blood supply and the bowel is dying. As a result, these are extremely tender to palpation and very erythematous on exam. This is an emergent surgical consult and these patients usually go to the OR. So, to summarize, Reducible hernias, you can reduce it and reassure the patient. Incarcerated hernias generally require a surgical consult, but nothing emergent needs to happen. This is especially true if there is an associated bowel obstruction. Strangulated hernias require an emergent surgical consult and require going to the OR. An easy way to make sure that you don't mix up this terminology is to just remember that somebody who's being strangled has lost their oxygen supply just like a strangulated hernia has lost its blood supply. Let's shift gears and now talk about bleeding esophageal varices. Typically this patient is going to be a chronic alcoholic who comes in with hematemesis. If you suspect this is what is going on in the vignette on your exam, there are a couple things you need to do. If they're hypotensive, you need to give them fluids. That is step 1. After this initial resuscitation, what two medications do you need to give this patient? So this patient will require octreotide, and they will also require prophylactic antibiotics. Typically on the exam, this is going to be ceftriaxone. After these medications are given, only then do you want to do the endoscopy. Now don't forget, with any kind of GI bleed, you need to be prepared to transfuse. So get that type in screen. I can almost guarantee you that they'll try to trick you with a complex management question, when really the answer is simply to get a type in screen. Do you guys know the general indication for a blood transfusion? Good, so in general, a hemoglobin less than seven gets a blood transfusion. And if the patient is actively bleeding, then sometimes even a level of eight or nine will get a blood transfusion. Now can anyone tell me what the cutoff is for a platelet transfusion? So we generally transfuse platelets if their platelet count is less than 10,000 or if it's less than 20,000 and they are actively bleeding. Now since I talked about esophageal varices can anybody tell me what the treatment is for hepatic encephalopathy? Good, so for your exam the first answer they're probably going to want you to pick is going to be lactulose. If this is not an answer choice, then the antibiotic rifamixin is probably going to be the correct answer. And you should suspect hepatic encephalopathy with any chronic alcoholic patient who comes in with altered mental status. Typically their physical exam will show asterixis, and their blood work will show elevated ammonia levels though the elevated ammonia level actually isn't necessary to make the diagnosis. All right, let's say a patient with a history of chronic knee pain comes to the ED with one week of severe epigastric pain and new onset hematemesis. What do you think is causing this patient's symptoms? Good, so this is probably a bleeding peptic ulcer. The big clue that they'll give you on the exam is that the patient will have a history of some chronic pain issue where they've been taking NSAIDs for a long time. On the exam they probably won't present with hematemesis, although they might. Now, what is the one medication that you need to give these patients regardless if they had hematemesis or not? Good! The answer is a proton pump inhibitor. Now, I know you're like, duh dude, but When you're taking your exam, the way they're going to trick you is they're going to also have an H2 blocker as an answer choice. Don't pick the H2 blocker. Pick the proton pump inhibitor. Okay, let's say the next patient comes in and you are concerned that they have cholecystitis. What is the first test that you need to order? Good, so this should be pretty straightforward, but the first test is a right upper quadrant ultrasound. Now, the exam might not be so easy on you. They might ask what findings you would expect to see on this ultrasound. Can anybody tell me what findings are associated with cholecystitis on ultrasound? So the findings associated with cholecystitis on ultrasound include a distended gallbladder, gallbladder wall thickening, the presence of pericholecystic fluid, or the presence of an impacted stone. I think the more likely scenario for your exam is that they will actually show you an image of the ultrasound and that you need to identify whether this patient has cholecystitis or not. So like I've said many times in my previous episodes, if you do not know what this image looks like on ultrasound, you can google it. It is a very common image and is very high yield for your exam. Now, if the ultrasound was unclear but you still suspect cholecystitis, What is the next diagnostic test that you need to order? So this is going to be a HIDA scan. Basically, a patient is injected with a radioactive material that is absorbed by hepatocytes. Those hepatocytes release this radioactive dye into the biliary tree, and then it gets excreted through the biliary tree into the small intestine. During this entire process, the patient is imaged and you can see where the dye flows through the biliary tree. If the gallbladder is not visualized on HIDA scan, this indicates the presence of either acute cholecystitis or a cystic duct obstruction. Now let's say the gallbladder was able to be visualized with the HIDA scan, however, the common bile duct is not able to be entirely visualized. This would indicate a common bile duct obstruction known as choledocolithiasis. These images are fair game for your exam, so again, I would recommend Google searching what they look like. Now, does anyone remember what Charcot's triad is used to diagnose? Good, so it's used to diagnose ascending cholangitis. Does anyone remember what Charcot's triad is? Good. It's fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice. The workup for ascending cholangitis typically starts with a right upper quadrant ultrasound. This will show a dilated common bile duct. The labs that you order will often show an elevated ALK-FOS as well as an elevated direct bilirubin. Let's say that the vignette gives you these ultrasound findings as well as these lab values, and you suspect ascending cholangitis. What is the next step? Good. So these patients receive an ERCP, which is used not only to confirm the diagnosis of ascending cholangitis, but also to relieve the obstruction. These patients will also require antibiotics. All right, I got another question for you guys. What two diagnostic modalities do you use when you're working up suspected acute pancreatitis? Good, so obviously you get a lipase, and a lipase level greater than three times the upper limit of normal is virtually diagnostic for acute pancreatitis. Do not pick amylase on your exam. The other diagnostic modality is a CT scan, and the reason that you're getting a CT scan is not to look for acute pancreatitis, but is to look for the complications of acute pancreatitis. I have two other high yield points regarding pancreatitis for you guys on the exam. The first is to just remember that acute pancreatitis can cause ARDS, also known as acute respiratory distress syndrome. My other pearl for your exam is that acute pancreatitis with an ALT level of greater than 150 is highly sensitive for gallstone pancreatitis, or pancreatitis caused by an obstructing gallstone. And I think that's going to be it for today's episode. There's still a lot more content to cover with abdominal pain, so I'm going to split this episode up into two separate episodes. So next week's content will also be on abdominal pain. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or questions regarding the content, please email me. My email is empodcastmike at gmail.com. Until next week, keep working hard, Keep studying and be sure to enjoy your shift.